Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Great to be here. Great to be with our listeners again. It's been a while. It's been a couple of months, but really, we're looking to get on here when really critical things happen, and I think that's where we are today. So I'm joined by my colleague, Dan Dix. You've met him on the podcast before, actually talking, I think, about this specific topic. So what we're here to address today is a change to the PM 2.5 National Ambient Air Quality Standard, specifically the annual standard. We're going to talk about what happened, so what the change is. We're going to talk about the process that this now sets off for both state agencies and how that blends into how industrial companies are going to have to handle this. And then we're going to get just further and further down into implications around things like non-attainment, implications around permitting and attainment areas, and all of that. And then we'll finish up with some takeaways. So we're just going to see where this takes us. This just happened yesterday. So I would call this a rapid reaction to the PM 2.5 next being lowered. So Dan, welcome. It's good to be with you again on the podcast. And I will start out with just tell us what actually occurred yesterday. Yeah, good to be with you as well, Colin. So yeah, what happened Yesterday is EPA finalized the PM 2.5 annual NACs, and what they did was they lowered it from the current standard of 12 micrograms to 9 micrograms. The proposed rule was to lower it to a range of between 9 and 10. So they select the lower of the range, 1, and so that rule has been published. Now what happens is it's going to take a couple weeks to be published in the Federal Register, and then they set at a effective date of 60 days from when it's published in the Federal Register for it to become finalized and effective. So we're looking at about mid-April for the new 9-microgram annual P25 NAX to become officially effective. Okay, so we've got 60 days plus two weeks that it'll take for this to actually make its Federal Register appearance. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about that effective date then, and let's just go with April, what you said. What happens? The standard becomes effective, and I believe that really state agencies, it starts with what happens with what state agencies now need to do when there's a standard that's lower. So maybe walk us through just broadly the process that this kicks off for state agencies regulatory agencies in evaluating this new standard. Okay. Yeah. So we'll start with state agencies, like you said. So this starts a two-year clock where state agencies are going to make their attainment determinations based on ambient monitoring data to designate areas as either meeting the new nine microgram standard or not meeting. So in attainment with the new standard or non-attainment. That process usually takes about a year to make recommendations. Then EPA reviews those recommendations and either agrees or disagrees. And the clock is two years. And so we're looking at, if we're April 2024, we're looking at April 2026 
when we would officially have changes in designation status for PN 2.5 annual standard across the country. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about, so two-year window for these decisions to be made, for this process to play out. Let's talk a little bit, because I know you've been looking at this, and maybe even with the latest set of data. So the state agencies are going to be looking at a three-year window of annual PM2.5 NACS data. Is that correct? And what will that window look like for them? What are they going to be using? Sure. Yeah. So the form of the standard is a three-year average. What I've been looking at, EPA's you know, published with their information when they finalized a rule, is the three-year average from 2020 to 2022. Okay. Now, you know, 2023 is over. It takes a little bit of lag there. That 2023 data will be certified on May 1st of 2024. And so that coincides pretty closely with when we're going to have that new finalized NAC. So states are going to be relying on that more recent 2021 to 2023 three-year average. So that, that's likely the data set that's going to be used for the, the determinations. And so we don't really know what 2023 looks like yet. Um, data is required to be posted on EPA's AQS site on a quarterly basis. And so I've seen first, second, and third quarter, but I haven't seen fourth quarter data yet. Is there a sense, Dan, that you have for when that fourth quarter might get, maybe not certified, but posted? Yeah, there's a there's a requirement. There's a, there's a one quarter lag. So March 31st is when um, is the required date to upload the data into the AQS system. Some you know, agencies may be proactive. You might start to see it trickling in before then, but that's that's the you know the regulatory required date to have that data in there. So that's you know, month and half away. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. Okay, so if if I'm if I'm uh, a company right now that's trying to assess, trying to get an early idea of potential attainment or non-attainment status, I could be looking at a bunch of things right now. I could be looking at 2020, 2021, and 2022, see what that looks like. But I could also even start to cheat into 2023 and just what's available right now. And then I could get maybe the full, but maybe not, maybe the full data picture, but not the fully certified picture on March 1st. And then by May 1st, everything will be will be locked. So to your point, the agencies will be using that that 21 to 23 window. That's right. Okay. All right. Got it. That makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about the states are going to evaluate this this data. A couple things. Is it safe to say that from the standpoint of ambient monitors, like like the availability, the the density of ambient monitors, PM two and a half. There's more of those monitors than there are things like SO two and NOx. Is that uh, a f- fair to say? I'm just trying to paint a picture for the listeners of like the density of the network. Yeah, there are definitely um, a pretty good dense network. I'm going off the top of my head here, but I believe it's between like 450 and 480 yeah. PM two point five monitors across the country, and that's a lot more. Then the SO2 monitors are the, are the NO2 monitors. Yeah, so it's just pretty good coverage, although the coverage is where you would expect it. You know, there's a lot more in urban areas and there's a lot less in, in, in rural areas. And so it's not evenly distributed by any means. 
Yeah, and that's where I was headed next a little bit because what will be interesting to observe here, and this is work that needs to be done, and I think all stakeholders in the process can get involved in it, but if we have urban areas with ambient data that shows that it's that, that urban area is higher than nine using the three-year window, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there are a lot more of those at nine than there are at 12, at the current 12. But a state agency is going to assess not just that monitor that's in the urban area, then it comes down to, well, there's this broader metropolitan statistical area. So perhaps the surrounding counties are in contribution to this exceedance. So it's not just about the monitor where the, or the county where the monitor is, but it's, you know, how, how do big do those grow? And I just, that, that'll be interesting to watch, and I think we should be interacting with our state agencies on that process and how it's going. But do you have any other thoughts on that process, Dan, or anything to add? I just wanted to highlight it more so than anything, that we're going to see that play out now. Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely important to point out that states are going to have to make these attainment determinations whether or not they have a monitor in that area or not. Um, and so they're going to have to do that. Like you're saying, you know, by looking at the monitoring data they have, start to look at, you know, what are the emission sources, you know, in these areas? Do I need to extend that non-attainment boundary outside of the county that has the monitor that's that's above nine? I think what I've thought about this is, and PM 2.5, it's a different type of pollutant than, say, ozone. And so I think it's going to be thought about a little bit differently. And I and I compare it to ozone because that's um, the other national ambient air quality standard that probably uh, has the, the most current non-attainment areas and, and, and folks that may be familiar with the, that non-attainment designation process have, have been through that for ozone. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the potential non-attainment areas here, because what this will do, 12 to 9 is a big change when you look at the current background ambient concentrations that are out there across the country. This is going to create new non-attainment areas for PM2.5, and many of those non-attainment areas will be in locations that are not currently a non-attainment area for any other pollutant, and also many of them that have not been a non-attainment area for any pollutant for quite some time. If so, ever. Or, or ever. In, in some in some areas, that's how, from a magnitude perspective, that's the significance of this change. So we're going to be, we're going to have companies and facilities in areas where, that haven't had to deal with non-attainment in the past, and now we'll be right in the thick of that. I know you've looked at some of the, at least the most recent data that we have available. Do you have some uh, size and shape for just based on the current information, like how many new non-attainment areas or counties, I should, I'll say for now that there could be. Yeah. And so I've got some statistics. I was looking at, like you said, the 2020 to 2022 average values. And currently there are, there are 21, you know, counties that are non-attainment with the PM 2.5. That increases to 123. So we increased by, there's 102 new counties that have monitors that are above nine. 
And again, that's just discrete counties. So that doesn't include potentially like I now have to look at adjacent counties and, and how, you know, far those impacts uh, may expand. Yes, that's a big change. It's a big jump. That's, yep. that's, that's a big jump. And, and it would have been very different had it been 10. That's true. Yeah. Unfortunately. Instead of nine. Yeah. yeah. So the, the range that EPA published, nine versus 10, maybe on the surface doesn't seem like a big difference, but it is uh, when you look at current ambient background. Let's go, let's keep on that thread then and talk a little bit about non-attainment area implications, which like I said, may be new for a lot of folks. Now, what we're talking about here doesn't really come into play right away because the state agencies and EPA are going to go through that two-year process of establishing the new designations. So this isn't right away, but this is a plan ahead and be proactive kind of thing. And I see two key pieces to uh, becoming a non-attainment area. One is the obligation that the state agency if, if there is a new non-attainment area, the obligation that the state agency has to put a plan together to get that area back into attainment That's right. and reasonably available control technology requirements and things like that are a part of the tools yep. that an agency uses to do that. And that involves facilities, specific facilities directly. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about that process and then so there's the, sort of the the normal getting back into attainment process, and then there's the permitting. So if I want to permit something, a modification or something new in a non-attainment area, the requirements associated with getting that construction permit can be very onerous. So those are two the two broad buckets I've got in my mind, and I just want to talk through them a little bit here, Dan, just to give the listener some sense that may not be used to it or accustomed to the process. Can you walk us through a little bit um, that maybe that racked sure. process, just any broad commentary on on what agencies will be doing as part of that? So like I said, in two years, we'll you know have made the attainment demonstration. So that puts us in April, 2026. Then that starts another clock for states. They have 18 months to put together their SIP plans for how they're going to bring those areas back into attainment. And that's where, just as you said, Colin, you know, one of the tools they could use is a RACT-like approach that some might be familiar with, again, through ozone. I've been through that SIP process for an SO2 non-attainment area, and that may involve requiring facilities to do air quality modeling to, you know, determine what emissions reduction facilities may need to take to help bring that area back into attainment. So like you said, that's that's out there a little bit. So that's two, two years plus one and a half. So we're talking three and a half years potentially until some type of racked or some type of modeling, you know, is going to affect facilities. So that's a little ways out, but that that's that's the process. Yeah, that's the process that's, that's out there a little bit longer term. And we'll talk through some takeaways of how to, start to plan ahead for that um, at the end. Okay, so that's the states getting areas back into, from non new non-attainment areas back into attainment. So that's a process that, that will go. Now the permitting piece. So I'm permitting for a modification, uh, a major modification or something new in 
two and a half years from now, and I'm now in a non-attainment area. I've got some different requirements. If I'm if I were to trigger for uh, as a major modification for PM two point five, I have some different requirements that I have to deal with than right. than in an attainment area. Mm-hmm. Just maybe tick through Dan the big picture non-attainment obligations, sure. so that folks can start to think about project planning. And I will start with that major modification threshold yes. for non-attainment resource review is 10 tons per year increase is the same as the as the PSD uh, major modification threshold. So we're still we're dealing with that 10 ton per year threshold. But you know, if we trigger it this under non-attainment resource review, the different requirements are first off, we're implementing layer lowest achievable emission rate instead of backed best available control technology. The biggest difference there is it pulls out the economic piece. You can't cost out of it. You just have to implement what is the lowest achievable emission rate. So that's item one. Item two is I have to now, for that project increase, purchase PM 2.5 emission reduction credits at a ratio of one to 1.15. So you have to purchase slightly more credits uh, then your project is increasing. And this is where it gets interesting because um, on you know day one of that area becoming non-attainment, if, if these are all new areas, there's no PIN 2.5 credit market developed yet. Um, and so it's a little bit of the wild west of there may not be a credit market developed. And because of that, and if there even if there is one developed, those emission rec- Production credits can be very, very expensive. You know, you have to purchase those. And then another nuanced a requirement that I've had to deal with is you have to do what's called an alternative siting analysis. You have to demonstrate, you know, that there is a benefit from putting this project or this new source in this area, this non-attainment area, as opposed to an attainment area. And so those are the three. I'll say additional, more onerous, more restrictive, more expensive requirements under non-attainment new source review permitting. Dan, I'm gonna. I might ask some questions here that could be their own podcast, and maybe that's what we need. To do. <laughs> there's a lot here. Yeah. Maybe there's a maybe there's a follow up to this. Um, but lowest achievable emission rate, the credit market. That's an interesting one uh, because, like you said, we're we've we're new non-attainment, and so what do you do? You have an obligation to purchase credits, but there's no credits to purchase. And in areas where there's been non-attainment for a long time, like like the Houston area with ozone, there's these mature markets where folks make reductions and get those those reductions certified, and they go out onto the open market, and there's a dollar per ton and yep. and all that stuff. Who who is it that establishes these markets? Dan, is it regulatory agencies? Yes, yeah, it's, it's regulatory agencies. And so the state's going to you know, require to put those markets together. Now, I dug into this because actually I was down in Houston presenting on this exact topic at the end of last year. You know, Before a market is developed and you have a project now, you can still go out and quote unquote find these credits. <laughs> you're you're going to have to identify, you know, a source, reach out to that source and, you know, ask them, you know, could you 
control something more? Could you shut down a source? And if you do, I will buy those credits from you. And that, that's what I mean by a little bit of the wild west. There's no market. And so you kind of have to, to figure that out on your own until a market is, is developed. It's a grassroots uh, identification of, of reductions through conversation and collaboration with neighboring uh, entities, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, and I suppose states are going to start thinking about this, perhaps start planning for it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be there on day one. Absolutely. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But but I think that could be probably its own uh, its its own discussion in its own right is these markets yeah. and how they work. I will put you on the spot slightly. Do we have any sense for or, or maybe you could use a different example of other pollutants around costs per credit when the market is really tight? When like the the demand for credits is high, but the supply is low, do you have any sense for that, Dan? Or is this not a good comparison because it's going to be a <laughs> brand new thing? It's going to be a brand new thing. Although, uh, again, I was down in Houston. Actually, I got invited to present at a at a emissions credit conference um, and to talk about this. And and they they quoted that you know there was this scenario that played out in California a while ago where somebody had to go and find a PN 2.5 credit and, you know, the tons per year, there's not many tons, but we were talking millions of dollars per ton. Yeah. It could be on that order. The extreme. That's the extreme, extreme um, end of it. I mean, and, you know, ozone credits could can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range per ton in the Texas area in Pennsylvania, you know, it's a little bit less, um, you know, high of a demand market, and we're closer to like that ten thousand to twenty thousand right. dollar per ton range. So it really varies. Yes. I mean, it's it's a it's a market, and so it's supply and demand. Yeah, yeah, it changes. It evolves over time, which make which can make it hard to plan. And, and so, <laughs> yeah, there there will be a lot of planning and forward thinking that goes into this. One other thing too, I want to highlight on non-attainment new source permitting is I highlighted, you know, you trigger it, you've got a 10 ton per year increase in, I'll specifically say direct PM 2.5. Yeah. And I may be, jump, I I may be jumping there. ahead here. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's right where I was going. Yeah. Precursors. But precursors, um, PM 2.5 potentially has four precursors and two most people are, are aware. So NOx and SO2 are automatically precursors. And so if I trigger major new source review for NOx or SO2, now I have indirectly triggered non-team new source review for PM2.5. And so the other um, ones that that only come into play in non-team new source review permitting are ammonia and even VOC. And what happens there is the state has to make a determination if those pollutants as PN2.5 precursors are significantly contributing to the non-attainment status. So that's going to be a case-by-case. States are going to determine if ammonia is uh, you know, a potential, a potential precursor. And so you've got four other precursor pollutants that you have to potentially try to, I'll say, avoid triggering non-attainment new source review, major new source review permitting to avoid have, going through 
the PM 2.5 issue that we just talked about. Yeah, that just layers on layers on to the complexity. I appreciate that, Dan. And we're going to talk about precursors as well for attainment and see if there's any differences there. Okay, so so non-attainment, we talked a little bit about what agencies are going to be doing and how that trickles down to the facility and company level, permitting challenges. Now let's talk about the flip. So we're in an area that maybe we're in a rural area. We're in an area where the PM two and a half annual concentration is less than nine. And so that, so that area is going to remain essentially in all those cases, it would remain as an attainment area. So you don't have any of the situation with the agencies needing to put together their plan to get back into attainment or any of that. You take all that out of the equation However, we still have that permitting bucket. So in that case, we're dealing with prevention of significant deterioration permitting, which at least is the type of permitting that, that, that companies in those locations have been accustomed to. Um, so, so there's probably more familiarity with the requirements. But walk us through, Dan, what permitting looks like, once again, for a major modification. Walk us through the attainment area requirements, and then we'll dig into the big one, which is the modeling piece, and talk a little bit more about the the impact of this standard tightening on that, but walk us through the broad requirements. Yeah, so if an area is, you know, again, they're less than nine, they're still, you know, in the PSD permitting program. And just like I said, the you know, the major source modification threshold is, is 10 tons per year there. So if you're if you're triggering that that threshold, you're going through PSD permitting and then that triggers the air quality modeling demonstration requirement and, and backed like I just talked about. All right. So on the modeling side, and this is, this is very interesting because I think intuitively uh, when you read articles, when you hear the general discourse, I think that there's a strong desire that, that we all have to be, to, to have all attainment. Like we want every area to be attainment from a public right. health standpoint, uh, that we want to we want to have a clear slate across the country, and so that might also lead you to think that when when areas go from non-attainment into attainment, that the permitting would become simpler. Which in some ways it does, but in other ways it doesn't. And I think this modeling requirement is a good example of where PSD modeling, even though we're in an attainment area, not a non-attainment area, it could be something that grinds a potential project to a halt because of the way the modeling works with respect to modeling your concentrations and then adding in the background. So just maybe walk through the different parts and pieces that go into that modeling, and then let's talk about how the the background uh, and the new standard influences that. Yeah, so step one is you're going to do air dispersion modeling of just the project-related emissions. So just just that increase in emissions if you've got a modification or just that new source if you're adding a source. And you're first comparing those to the significant impact levels, um, which are, are pretty low levels. It's 0.2 micrograms for the annual standard and 1.2 for the 24-hour standard. Now, just as an aside here, in the preamble in the final rule, and this was a surprise, EPA indicated EPA indicated that they plan to reduce that 0.2 annual still 
before the effective date in, in April. And so that 0.2 value, which is already very low, is going to get lower. And so it's going to be harder to model below that level. And so if you model above the sill, then you have to do you know, a, a cumulative modeling assessment, which brings in three pieces. Those three pieces are, I'm now modeling my entire facility, all emitting units at their potential to emit rate. I am have to include local sources now. So I have to go out potentially, you know, as far as 50 kilometers, this varies, you know, state to state with the guidances, but I've got to model local sources. And then I got to go and grab what's the existing air quality in the area as measured at a monitor. And that's the third component. And so I model my site, my neighbor's site, and then I add in the existing background. Those three things go together and I have to then be below the new nine microgram standard on an annual basis. And Dan, what we see broadly in the ambient concentrations, even for areas that are less than nine, they're not one microgram in terms of a of a of an ambient of a of a measured concentration. We're not talking about numbers that are one, two, and three. We're talking about numbers that are six, seven, and eight going up. Yeah, the U.S. again, 450 to 480 monitors. That the average across all those monitors is about 7.8, um, and so the lowest I really see is like in the four to five range. Yeah. That's 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 the background. Yes. So if I've got a project and my background concentration is six micrograms per cubic meter, uh, before. Well, I shouldn't say before yesterday because it's not final yet. But from from now until the middle of April, when the standard gets finalized, I would have a standard of twelve. I would have a background of six, and so I'd have six micrograms per cubic meter in there, where my facility and my neighbors' modeled concentrations can can equal less than six. And that yep. would show a modeled, a total modeled concentration less than the standard. Now, in that same situation, uh, after the mid, uh, midpoint of April, I've got a standard of nine. So now I've got three. My my available headspace, if you will, to model within has been cut in half. And that'll represent a challenge. And I want to put the same qualifier in here that I always do. When we're talking about having difficulty modeling against the PM two and a half standard, we're not talking about projects that actually contribute to an exceedance of the standard in reality. We're talking about the modeling process. It's we're talking about difficulties that are associated with with some of the conservative nature of the models and the conservative nature of how we need to add all those numbers together. So I just I don't want anyone to think we're talking about NAC's exceedances here necessarily. We're talking about uh, modeled concentrations using the process that's required under PSD, which is a very conservative process. And so that'll be a challenge and something to plan for moving forward for sure. How do precursors fit in here, Dan? And what guides? I know EPA has put out some guidance that 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 has facilities uh, perhaps more likely to be modeling their direct PM two and a half emissions than maybe they would have been before. Right. So um, 
there is it's called ozone and PM 2.5 uh, permit modeling guidance that EPA finalized in 2022. And that guidance, similar to what I just talked about for non-attainment news source review, if I major for NOx or uh, SO2, I now have to account do a direct PM 2.5 modeling analysis. And so, so I'm I'm now because of that triggering, you know, a modeling analysis of direct PM 2.5. And then I have to add the secondary contribution from that NOx and SO2 uh, to the the model direct PM 2.5. So there's there's two pieces to it that I have to add together. So we talked about three different pieces to the the modeling demonstration. And then on top of that, there's a second piece that I've got to now add in all the secondary PM 2.5 contributions. And and in the case of that direct PM 2.5 modeling against a lower significant impact level, against a lower ambient standard. So the, the, the complexity of that evaluation has ramped up and the level of interaction with the state agency uh, about that process and the specifics of how it needs to look have, have certainly ramped up. So we've got, you know, we've got a, a challenge, a permitting challenge uh, for new projects that are important, important new projects. And we've got to be able to plan ahead for those. Dan, I wanted to talk about, and then, and then let's talk about, I'm sure I missed something here, right? Uh, but I wanted to start talking a little bit about, we, we just covered a lot of information there. I want to try to distill it down a little bit. Mm-hmm into what are some things uh, we could be doing to plan ahead now? Or if I'm at a company and I'm, I'm evaluating this, what are some things I could be doing? So I've got a few ideas and maybe you could add to them. Number one, we talked about the uh, designation process that this is going to kick off. So I would certainly understand if I don't yet understand if I'm in a location, I want to know what the ambient monitors for PM2.5 around me say. And I want to have a, a sense of where that attainment or non-attainment decision will go. So that's one thing I want to do immediately. And it's important to look at monitors nearby because, like we said, if one county over has concentrations that are greater than nine, then even though I'm in an adjacent county, I may still be right in there in that non-attainment situation because a lot of times the surrounding counties get pulled in. So that's one thing that comes to mind for me is look at that data and really understand it. The second thing that comes to mind is have a really good understanding of your PM2.5 emissions profile. So what are your largest PM2.5 emission sources? What are your PM2.5 emission sources that may not emit the greatest uh, tonnage of emissions, but which are the ones that might be the most likely to contribute to high modeled ground mm-hmm. level concentrations? And that, that could be influenced like things like it's a shorter stack or it's a fugitive source or it's, it's a low volume release. Like there's a lot of things that could once again be its own podcast that influence dispersion, not just the, the mass of PM two and a half emitted from that particular point. So I think there's probably just a little bit of an inventory there of really getting a better 
uh, better understanding of that. And maybe that leads to let's collect perhaps some different newer emissions data if we don't have any any recent data or we have data that may be overly conservative. That might be modeling, right, to get maybe a better understanding just from a, a big picture of, of what that looks like. And so I think there's a, a bit of a, of a proactive perhaps planning and just getting a better understanding of how the overall PM2.5 emissions profile looks. And then the third one I would add into it is start to talk with your state agency about what's going to be their process. How are they going to look at it? Especially after you look at that ambient monitoring data, let's start to talk with the agency. What do you see? And get a, a collaborative process going that can carry through that designation process. And I think I think these things are probably all painted too by when do I have projects coming up that I need to permit that might trigger PM two and a half or trigger major modification for one of those precursors. I should know that. And I should really plan ahead for if it it does indeed trigger, what does that look like? for a new ambient standard, because for the attainment modeling that we talked about, if that modeling doesn't, if, if, if you can't make that modeling work, then you don't have a project or you need to offset emissions somewhere else. So it can really be a, a barrier. So planning ahead for that, what are some of the things we're going to do proactively to make sure we can get our most important projects done? So those are all things that come to mind for me, Dan. So having heard some of those, you might have another uh, one or two things to add or just, you know, an ex- extra context on one of the ones I already mentioned. Yeah, I mean, this might be a little nuanced, but it goes along with something that you brought up. Um, and have a good understanding of what your property boundary is. What's What's your ambient boundary? How are you restricting access to the public? Where are those emission sources with respect to that ambient boundary? Uh, because this is, you know, what we see a lot of times is the the lower emitters, but, you know, fugitive sources that are closest to the property line could be your biggest contributors in a modeling analysis. And so that's the other thing I would dig into a little bit more around, you know, knowing what your inventory looks like is also, you know, knowing what your property looks like. Cause you're not, and maybe we should start with this. You're only modeling offsite impacts. And right. so you're not, you're not, you're not modeling receptors on your property as long as you're restricting access in, in some way. I think all of these things fit into the broader concept of developing your PM two and a half strategy. What is your PM two and a half strategy? If I'm someone in in EHS and my organization is looking to me to talk about the implications of this new standard and, and we have capital projects lined up going into the future, I want to know every possible layer or implication of this new standard on those capital projects. Uh, and some of these can be quick turns. There's a new market we want to get into, whatever it is. And so it could be, hey, I'm called into the, the boardroom here and we've got this, this thing that we want to implement and we want to do it in six months. I want to understand 
all of the impacts of the of this standard before I get called into that session, uh, so I could really walk through it. Because when you're getting to standards this tight, uh, that are this close to background, the air permitting is something that should come as one of the first steps in the evaluation of the project. This is not engineer the project and think about the project. And, and then once we're done all that, then we, we do some modeling and, and we just, and then we submit it. The modeling is going to influence the design and the engineering and the feasibility of the project when we're at standards this low. It was already that way when the standard was 12. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. It's even more so that way when the standard is nine. And that's just for attainment permitting. Then non-attainment permitting, we talked about the credits and the markets and and the need to get those, which is also going to have its own obstacle. So this is not to paint a picture of impossibility. It's not that. But it really is that there are extra things to plan for as a result of this new standard. And if we plan for those, we could be successful. And so, Dan, I know there's an article that you penned on this as well. And that's coming out today on the day we're recording this. So that'll come out. I'm sure there'll be more information that comes out from you and the team here in the coming days and weeks. But I just before we sort of closed, is there anything that we didn't talk about here or anything that we missed? I'm actually thinking of a topic as I ask you that, but I'll go to you and see if there's anything we missed. I do have a, I'll call it a third category that um, I've yes. been thinking about. And that third category is, like we said, We've got two years until areas get designated. So what if I'm in an area that is above the NACs between now and two years from now, you're still going through PSD permitting. And so the question is, I have no headroom. What do I do? And I've been mulling this over. I've been talking to some other state agencies. I mean, a couple thoughts and solutions that I have heard are that you're going to have to, when you do that modeling demonstration, model below that significant impact level. It's going to be maybe the most obvious one, but could be pretty difficult. I'd say option two is really taking a deep dive at all those conservative things that we talked about and trying to pull those back, you know, the extent we can refine them while still working within the guidance and the regulatory framework. Yeah, that first option's the cleanest, I guess, or the right. Yeah, so just to repeat that because that's an interesting one. I'm over nine, but I'm not a non-attainment area yet because it takes two years to do that. That's right. So if I want to submit a big permit application that involves major modification for PM two and a half this June, and the standards in place, so you got to model against the new nine standard, but my background is ten. There's no space to complete the modeling demonstration the way you normally would. That's an interesting one. It is. Yeah. Once again, I think that goes back to talk to the state agency as early as possible and understand where that monitoring data is as early as possible. That's right. Yeah. Because there's extra complications for projects that are coming up. Dan, there is another piece here, I think, that's been talked about, the secondary standard. Is that something we should cover now or is that something we should cover later? I would just highlight that the secondary standard is it for PM, SO2, and NOx is at OMB for review 
right now. And typically the secondary standard, next standard is for public welfare, not for public health. So historically, it's always been set at a level that is higher than the primary standard. But we've heard, you know, tidbits that they might try to make the secondary standard lower than the primary standard. And that's another like, that's never happened before. So I don't know the implications of that. So you could just take this conversation that we just had, if that were to occur and potentially just tighten things up even a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so that'll be one we monitor right. and see where it lands. Okay. Anything else, Dan, while we're together? No, I think that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. okay. I don't have anything else I want to bring up right now. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to recap us here. Obviously, we talked about what's changing. We talked about the process that this kicks off for the agencies. We talked about some of the facility operating and permitting implications on our PM2.5 emissions profile and our ability to permit projects and the things we need to do, depending on if we're non-attainment or attainment. And then we wrapped up with the PM2.5 strategy steps, I would say. So I think we're at a good stopping point. And like I said, there's going to be a lot more content coming out on this from us in the coming days and weeks. But for now, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Hope this was helpful. And we will talk to you again real soon. Thanks. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.